basics, back to basics. We all understand that in any discipline, getting back to basics is crucial. It's crucial. Uh, if you lost your swing as a baseball player, you go back to the basics of a swing. And as an author, you often go back to the basics of writing. And, and we as believers, uh, even more so, uh, need to make sure we're going back to the basics of the gospel. And, and Paul does that. That's why we're studying the book of Romans. Paul takes us back to the basics of the gospel. And we look at Romans 1, 1 through 8, uh, the first eight chapters of this amazing book. Someone asked me, will we ever tackle the second eight? I said, yeah, it's going to be like a cliffhanger. It'll be next year. Uh, we'll look at them. But for the first part of, of the book of Romans, Romans 1 through 8, it's the basics of the gospel. And it's helpful for all of us, whether you've been a Christian for years or whether you're seeking the things of Christ this morning, a look at the, at the book of Romans will benefit each and every one of us. Paul really tackles at least the first uh, six chapters, or we could say a few, eight chapters, the, this idea of, of the gospel, this, this truth of the gospel with the precision of a, of a lawyer, uh, of a court lawyer. And, and so that's what he's doing. And so today he's going to continue to present the evidence as we look at the passage we have for us this morning. The evidence he has against humanity. And, and we know that in a court case that, that it's not circumstantial evidence that the judge or the jury is looking for. It, it, it's, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. And we're going to find this morning that beyond a reasonable doubt that God is just. He's fair in saying that we are all guilty of sin. We're all guilty before him. We all fall short of the righteousness of God. And, and we've looked at two hinge verses to sort of get us to this point. I call them hinge verses because much theology branches off from the truth contained within these verses. But the very first week, two weeks ago, we looked at Romans 1.16, where the scripture tells us that, that Paul's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to save everyone who believes. And so Paul starts by sharing that the gospel is powerful. But you may remember last week I said before he unpacks the good news of the gospel, he takes us into what I will call the bad news of the gospel. And in order to understand truly how good the good news is, we need to understand how bad the bad news is. So last week in Romans 1.25, we looked at that hinge verse that says, but we've all exchanged the truth of lie, the truth of God for a lie. We've all exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And we're going to get to a third hinge point um, later in the message. But last week, Paul drew our attention to sin. And as we looked at sort of the list of sins, uh, just to sort of give us an idea, Paul understood that some people might look at that list of sins and go, I understand how bad they are, and I've seen really bad people do those things, but I've been a little better than that. And this week, Paul's going to address those individuals that we'll call moralists, if you're a moralist out there. Or, or he'll call a Jew, but in our day and age, it'd be a churchgoer. Those who maybe say, I, I haven't really done as bad of things as other people. They're, they're comparing themselves to the people around them. It, it's interesting to me that Paul tackles it this way because it fits in really well with what Jesus shares when he shares the parable of the prodigal son. How many of you know that parable? Parable of the prodigal son. And interesting, it's really not the parable of a prodigal son, it's the parable of two prodigal sons. That there's two sons that are actually lost, but we usually focus on the younger son because he's doing really bad things. Like the younger son's doing things like asking his father, well, if you're not going to die, at least give me my inheritance. Man, that's pretty bad, right? He goes 
goes off, he, he blows all the money anyway on things that, 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 that he certainly shouldn't have been blowing it on. And, you know, all this, I mean, you look at him and there's no doubt he's a troubled child, okay? He, he's just been really bad and sinning in these really bad ways and, and we focus on that a lot. But the older brother isn't any better than him, he just looks like him. The, the, the older son is just as guilty. In fact, in some ways, his sin is even more despicable because he basically says to his father, you owe me. I've been here the whole time. I've gone to church every Sunday. Can you picture? I've done all these good things. You owe me. And the sad part about the prodigal son is the younger son realizes his sinfulness and comes to the father to find forgiveness. The older son from the story never does. And Paul understood that. And so it's almost as if last week in the passage he wrote, he gets done writing and he goes, but wait a minute, there's going to be some moralists and there's going to be some churchgoers and Jews who are going to say, this doesn't pertain to you. And he's going to go, oh, oh yes, it pertains to all of us. It pertains to all of us. So whether you this morning relate to the, to the younger brother who has a real story, you know what I'm saying? Or whether you relate to the older brother, you're going to find we're all equal before the cross. That the wage of sin is death. That's an equal um, justification of God saying, this is, this is what you earn because of what you have done. It's the only truth of God for our lives. Now the passages we're going to look at are a little lengthy. And so what we've done is we will have them up on the screen. Someone's actually going to read them for us. We'll follow along together. And we're going to start with Romans 2, verses 1 through 6. So look up at the screen, follow along. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impatient heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. It's as if all of us are living in a reality TV show, which often is not really real. But, but, but the cameras are following us around. But the cameras aren't just recording what we're saying outwardly. They're also recording what we're saying inwardly. He says there are those people who, when they walk around the world, and all of us have been guilty of this, but some they've become pretty good experts at it. They look at other people and you start casting judgment on them. She deserves this. He deserves that. I'm not as bad as them. They deserve this. They deserve that. And, and Paul says that when you do that picture, at the end of time, God sits you down and says, I want to show you something. And he shows you this videotape of all the judgments that you've cast upon other people. Now, by the way, it's not, is that right or wrong? It's the judgment on the individual. It's looking down on the person. And, 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 he, and, and he, he's going to show you this video, and then God's going to ask this one question. Have you ever violated one of the things you judge other people on? Are you perfect? And all of us, if we were to be honest, would say, yes, we have actually violated the things we judge other people on. We're all guilty. 
you sat here and you go, no, no, I am perfect. You are a bigger problem than, 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 than what, you know, the rest of it. Acknowledging it's the first step, right? We're all in the same boat. And Paul says, listen, the moralists, really, you condemn yourselves because you're usurping God. God is the true judge. Now, again, don't get me wrong. It's not as if we shouldn't help people. If we see a brother and sister in Christ that are doing wrong, then we lovingly share the truth of God's Scripture with them to, to try to restore them. We know that's true, but when we're judging them, when we're taking God's seat of judgment and casting judgment upon them, looking down on them, believing, here's the real point, we're better than them. Then we've cast judgment on ourselves. See, God's fairness is seen that He judges justly. By the way, don't we all want God to be just except when it's us? Like, I want God to be just on, on these people because that's a bad thing. And then there's a, something in my life I go, but God, give me mercy. Give me mercy, just judge everyone else. And, and ju- God is just in, 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 in how he just and how he judges. God, God isn't satisfied with our own self-righteousness. In fact, you know, someone may proclaim, God must be satisfied because I'm healthy and happy and fulfilled. And God says, no, 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 you are not correct enough. None of us are. God is the standard, right? We all fall short of his righteousness, not my righteousness, not the righteousness of someone who may be nice to me. Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, put the best person you can think of on the scale. And they're still far short of the righteousness of God. We're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. In fact, the psalmist words it this way. I mean, Isaiah words it this way. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Yeah, that's pretty drastic. We cannot save ourselves. What is, what is Isaiah saying? He's saying we, like lepers, are infected and we're infectious. There's a positive one, right? Here's a better one. We're like faded leaves that are decaying, brittle, and lifeless. Yeah, I came here to encourage you this morning. Like a, hor- like a hurricane force wind, the overwhelming power of sin has swept us away. Romans 2, 4. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Paul says what? Romans 1, 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to save everyone who believes. And then in verse 25, he says, but here's the bad news. The bad news is that we've all exchanged the truth of God for a lie. But then what does it say in 2, 4? But it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Leads us into salvation. Now, the kindness of God doesn't save us. It's intended to point us to the Savior. The kindness of God doesn't give us freedom from sin. It gives us the opportunity to repent and come to Him and find salvation. Then we read Romans 2, 7 through 13. Take a look again at the screen and follow along. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. 
and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. This passage has often been misunderstood and, and sometimes mistaught. Some believe that this passage is describing the difference between believers and non-believers, that believers are doing all the right things and non-believers are, are not. And, and that's not true because even as believers, we're still not perfect. We're being perfected, right? Okay, let me ask it this way. You're being quiet on me. The person next to you is not perfect and being perfected, right? That, that we're all on a journey, so it's certainly not teaching that. Some have also chosen to see this passage as a detour from Paul's teaching that we're saved by grace alone and teach that what it is saying is that we're saved by works because it sort of words it in a way that says, look, if you're doing the right things, then you're right with God. But it's not saying either of those things. What it's doing is giving us a picture and saying, if you could be perfect, you'd be righteous. If you could be perfect, you'd be righteous. But the answer to, are you perfect, come on now, is no. Someone just said it really loud. You're not perfect. I was in marriage counseling not long ago, uh, pre-marriage counseling, and the person said, she is perfect. Now, by the way, that's a good answer, husbands. I mean, I, I, that's, that is a good answer. I mean, I, I had to give kudos for that, but I was in a pre-marriage counseling, so I had to be honest, and I'd say, now, that's not true. We know that, right? Come on. And I said, if you think she's perfect, just wait till you get married and you're living together for a while. Right? Don't, and then don't say nothing. Right, 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 women? Right, women? That's true. And, 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 and so, why? Because, because here's the reality. If, if you're looking for perfection in people, you're going to be greatly disappointed. Not that we're not seeking to be perfect, not that we're not seeking to be loving, but we fall short often. And so Paul is clearly teaching that, that we're, we're not saved by our good works. Now, people who are saved strive to do good works through the power of the Holy Spirit, but we're, we, we're not able to in and of ourselves do that. And that should be liberating to us because there's some people who believe if I just do more good than bad, I can get into heaven. But I don't know about you, but that is quite a burden. If every day that's the way I live my life in order to get to heaven, not to please God, not to love others, but because I want to earn something, that is a burden that will weigh you down. It will crush your spirit, and it's a lie of the enemy. It's not the way it works. Real spiritual power is for those who believe in Christ for salvation, and by the power of His Spirit, He does make us more and more like Jesus. In fact, when Paul, and we'll look at this a little later as we go into Romans a little more, but Paul looks at salvation in two ways. He's looking at salvation with justification. That's when we say yes to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That's a moment when we say, yes, you're my Lord and Savior. I begin this relationship with you. But he also sees salvation as sanctification, which is when we become more and more like Jesus. If you were to ask Paul, which is salvation, he'd say, what are you talking about? That is salvation. We come to Jesus, we believe in him for our salvation, then we follow Jesus, and we live on mission with him. That's a simple definition of a disciple of Jesus Christ. You believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you follow him, and you live on mission with him. But we all fall short of the glory of God, and that's why we need to come to Jesus for salvation, and it's why God's fairness is seen in his just verdict. His verdict is true. We're all found guilty. And then we read Romans 2, 14 through 16. 
when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So what is happening there is, is quite amazing. Paul declares, now he's moving, he's, he's talked about the younger souls, those who are doing bad, bad, bad things. We understand that. In fact, if you're one of those and you come to Christ, Paul will later write, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. It doesn't mean God loves the more. It says those people who understand the depth of their lostness usually have a greater appreciation for the loving, saving grace of God in their life, more so than those who think, I just did something really little and God had to save me a little bit. Now Paul has moved from the moralist to the Jew. And before you think Paul's a Jew hater, Paul is a Jew. Okay? He's not a Jew hater. In fact, later he'll write in the book of Romans. We'll have to wait until next year for me to get to it. But later he writes in the book of Romans, I would, I would personally endure the punishment of hell if it meant that my people could be saved. That's not a man who hates his people. He loves them. But he understands the failings of his people, too, because he had failed in the same way. And that is that believing that they were simply Jews that they were in, nothing had to happen. It wasn't about relationship. For you and I, that could easily be translated as a churchgoer. Churchgoers, people who grew up in a church and just feel, since I grew up in a church, I'm in. I don't have to worry about anything else. And he's, he's talking about sort of the work of God in those people's lives. And, and he says something quite interesting. He says that those, those who, who know the law sometimes don't do what the law says, and there's those who don't know the law but tend to sometimes do what the law says. And I don't know what's that mean. How many of you, don't raise your hands, but you know people who don't know Jesus, but they're good people? They're giving people. They serve people. Dare I say... If you know those people, I'm going to get myself in trouble here. How, do not raise your hands. Do not say amen. Let's just go quiet. I'm giving you permission. How many of you know people who go to church and claim to know Jesus and they don't love others? Like they're hate-filled people. They're mean. Do you realize people who don't know Jesus can still be nice? Unfortunately, there are those who can know Jesus who aren't nice people. By the way, I have sometimes not been nice. So have you. And so Paul says, what do you do with that? If you're a church go, what do you do with that? If you're so good, and yet there's those who don't have the law, and they're sometimes acting better, but you don't, does that not make you understand that we all fall short? And he says, well, how can that even happen? He says, because the law has been written on our heart. The Ecclesiastes writer says that eternity has been written on our hearts. In other words, we know the difference between good and evil to a certain extent. In fact, in our culture, we expect people to know the difference between good and evil to a certain extent. If someone doesn't know the difference, we say they have a mental health problem. Do we not? And so Paul says this, and it's just being good sometimes isn't magical. It doesn't save you. But here's the good news. Struggling doesn't not save you. He's saying, understand, we're all in the same boat. We, we all know what it feels like to be accused.
accused of our own conscience. But we also know what it's like to be accused of our own conscience and explain it away. It's so much easier to point out the imperfection in somebody else than it is to really be honest with ourselves and point out the imperfection in us. See, whether we know of God through special revelation, which is the Bible, or general revelation, which is nature, we all know something of God and what is right, and, and, and we have chosen, even in the face of that, sin, to exchange the truth of God for a lie. So where's the hope? Well, the third hinge verse that we looked at just a little while ago, Romans 2, 4. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's His work in our lives. See, we either choose Jesus now, or we're judged by Him later. Francis Schaeffer, in his book, The Finished Look of Christ, states it this way. He says, Paul talks of the wrath of God, but in Revelation, John talks of the wrath of the Lamb. The person of the Trinity who came and suffered so much that the people would not have to be judged will be their judge. The person who tries to come to God without coming through Jesus Christ will, at the judgment, come face to face with Jesus Christ. So we either, we either come to the one who, who the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through who? Jesus Christ our Lord, right? Jesus. We either come into salvation through Jesus Christ now, or we try to do it our own way, and in the end, we receive judgment from Him. I just personally want to say, I would rather be in relationship with Jesus as Savior than confronted later from Jesus as judge. That's the kindness of God, that I'm able to make that decision. But I'm able to, to, to be able to be in that relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So Paul's about to address Jews directly, real directly. But remember, in this present day, it would be churchgoers. Put, put churchgoer in there, because I really do believe we can learn a lot when we put ourselves in that situation. And, and, and we who have access as churchgoers, we have access to so many Bible translations. We have so many different church communities to choose from. We have a, still a pretty strong hint of a Judeo-Christian ethic within our culture. And so the question is, is this enough for salvation? Is having those things enough for salvation? Well, let's see. Look at Romans 7, 2, 17 through 24. Up at the screen. Let's follow along together. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed for the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others do not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking it. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul, again, is writing this out of love to his fellow Jews. Paul is a teacher of the law, so he understands this. Probably was part of his argument before coming to Christ. How can I be bad? I teach the law. I know the words. I've been in all the Sunday school classes. You know, I go to church every week type of thing. And, and, and that should be enough, right? And Paul says, no. He says, because you 
might have taught a class, but you didn't need to fulfill what you taught in that class perfectly. It'd be like any one of us teaching a class on love. And then going, because I taught that class, I've mastered it. I'm righteous because I've taught love. But all of us know that no matter what we would teach in this church, no matter what it would be, whether it would be love or forgiveness or you name it, all of us wrestle with those things. We're all on a journey together. And and Paul says you can find yourself so trapped when you think because you know the word that somehow you're perfect because you know it. Apart from the Spirit's work in your life. But, But God certainly uses the word of God we know in our life rather than the Word of God we don't know, so we should know God's Word. But it's the Spirit of God in, in, in conjunction with, with a surrendered heart and the Word of God that transforms us. It's not our own strength, it's not our own willpower. Further, we discover that when a person with the Scriptures preaches it as something external, something, something out there, not allowing it to be a transforming agent in our lives, that person, that a person without the Scripture is caused to be dishonored, even by the Word of God. That when we're not honest with each other, not honest with, with the mess that we're still dealing with, becoming like Jesus is a messy process. Not because God's a mess, He's perfect. So guess who the mess is? You and me. And I've often said this, if you don't think you're messy, you're probably the messiest among us. And, and, and it's so important. There's such a tension in that. Again, what the Scripture doesn't teach, it doesn't teach. That we, out of love, should allow people to continue sinning when we're in the church, but without coming up to them and loving them, caring for them, and telling them the truth of God's word. We want to see people who have fallen into habitual sin be able to find victory in Christ. We don't want to ignore it, but we don't want to become a place. I'm so thankful that Crossroads is a good place. We don't want to become a place where people can't share the hurts and their habits with others. We don't want to be a place where, where the good, the bad, and the ugly can all be shared and we grow together. I had a friend who pastored another church in another community where I was at years ago. And he came to me because one of the key elders in the church who had taught many a Sunday school class, actually had, had, had preached in front of the church on several occasions when the pastor wasn't there. Uh, that individual came and had to tell the body that, um, uh, tell the board that him and his wife were getting a divorce. Now, it wasn't just a divorce. It was the fact what blew his mind was no one saw it coming. And I said to him, what do you mean no one saw it coming? Because either one of two things was happening or both. Either, either no one was doing life with them and couldn't see it coming. Come on now. No one was close enough with them or cared enough to, to walk with them. Or they were just really fake. And my friend said, I, I don't know. And he, and he said, what do you think? And I said, how honest do you want me to be? That's a dangerous question. He said, be honest. I said, I don't know any faulty individual. Like I've had conversations with men about it. I don't know any faulty individual. He said, what do you mean? I said, you can't do that with Because here's the thing, many a pulpit in this country will say, you're okay just the way you are. 
And let me tell you, I'm going to say this as your pastor who loves you. You're not okay without Jesus. You're not okay. Like you're in really bad shape, by the way. If you've been here the last couple weeks, you've heard the, the bad news. We're in bad, bad shape without Jesus. That's what makes the good news so much, because in the kindness of God, he's given us an opportunity to come into a relationship with him. A place of honesty. Where we journey together. Why do you think the scripture says we need to bear with one another? Because sometimes we're all bears. And out of the love of Christ, you share and you overcome. You don't overlook, you overcome. Being a Jew or raised in a church with Christian teaching isn't enough to say you're anything. I have a friend who loves to say, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a Big Mac. I don't know if I like it because I like Big Macs or just because of the chemical, but, but it's true. So who then is a true follower of God? Paul's glad you asked. Look at verses 25 through 29 with me. He's up on the screen. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man. spend a lot of time getting into the specifics of circumcision. Pastor Chris is in the second row, and if you have any questions on circumcision, he would love to be here afterwards and talk to you through all the details of it. He said that's something he loves to do, so if you want to do that, just come up and ask him, and he'll, he'll share that with you. But it, it was an outward sign of, 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 of really a covenant relationship between the Jewish people and God, and, and, and the men would be circumcised as a sign. And, and what did it become? It was corrupted. It came to be if you circumcised, you were right with God. This never what it was intended to be. It was intended to be much like a wedding ring is, a sign of a vow that was made to remind us of that vow, that when we looked at it, we would be committed to that vow. But they said, no, no, it's like, I have the wedding band, so I'm already the perfect husband, because they sort of were looking at themselves. I have circumcision, so I'm already, I'm, I'm like perfect with God. I don't need this covenant anymore. Uh, I'm right because I'm Jewish. And, and, and Paul says, that's not true. Now remember, Paul is a Jew. They're saying, that's not true. He basically says, I once thought that way too, but, but it's not true. But what, Paul, what God looks at is the circumcision of the heart. What's that mean? It, our inner being. It, it's a commitment to God. That even us becoming like Jesus doesn't begin with right action. It begins with a right heart. And a right heart is humbled before God, saying, I need you. I needed you when I came to you for salvation. I need you as I become more and more like Jesus. I can't do life without you. You are the one who sustains me. And, and so Paul says, listen, you can't be made right with God simply by ritual. For the Jew, you can't be made right by God simply because you're circumcised. For the Christian, you can't be made right by God simply because you've been baptized. Baptism saves no one. It doesn't save anyone. It's an outward sign of an inward work. We're not excited because when someone's baptized, we go, oh, now they're in the kingdom. We get excited because when they're obediently being baptized, it's a way of them declaring to the whole church family, I, am be I belong to God and I belong to this church. Praise the Lord. 
got saved when we're confirmed. We don't have confirmation here, but I was a part of a church tradition uh, when I was growing up as a child where I was confirmed as a child. I was literally told when I was 13 when I took my first communion to go cover again. Do whatever you want, basically. I uh, remind my friends who are pastors. I was told that when I was 13, so I'm okay. I feel bad about you, but I'm, you know. But that is so wrong. And trust me, 13-year-old boys are crazy about that. But you're not saved if you're homeless. You're not saved through church membership. You're, you're, you're not saved through communion. In fact, Paul warns us. He says, when you take communion, do it mindfully. It's not a salvific act for someone that's saved and serious about their salvation to do. In fact, he writes that there's some people who have gotten sick and even died because they've taken communion wrong. What? I don't want to scare you about taking communion. But we should take it seriously. Are they meaningless? No, they have meaning, but they're powerless to save. Only Jesus saves. In the rituals and the tradition, they only have meaning because they're in Christ. Because they're in Christ. And by the way, isn't that great? Because it doesn't mean that we have to worry about that I get baptized. That we get the right communion elements. Can we do the mint communion like we're doing here now? And can it still work when the bread doesn't taste very well? Ask the question. Paul knows he's a Jew. He's there visiting for us church boys. Well, what, is there a benefit of being a Jew? Is there a benefit of us growing up in the church for those of us who have? Well, look at Romans 3 1 through 8, our last part of the passage here. And Paul's going to answer four questions. He actually answers three, but we'll get to that in a minute. Look at this one. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Do their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it was written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth about his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So the first question, what benefit is there of being a Jew? And Paul says, well, you have the word of God. You have the Old Testament. And so someone who says this morning, what benefit that is to grow up in the church? We have the word of God. The word of God is a precious gift to us. It allows us to know Him. The Spirit of God uses it to help us grow in Him. And, and the second question is, does this Jewish failure to recognize their Messiah mean that God's master plan is a failure? Uh, I want you to think about that for a minute. They're saying, well, since we're really not following after you, maybe your plan is faulty. And Paul says, no, God's plan is perfect. You're not. That's how he answers that. He says, God's plan is perfect. How many times have you wanted to wrestle with God's plan and rewrite it? That's what they were saying. Can we write, rewrite the plan a little bit? We think it's faulty. And Paul says, no, it's perfect. You're just not perfect. That's the issue. Just wrestle with that. And, and this third question is this. Is God fair in condemning? 
forgiving human sin, seeing that much sin will make him appear all the more holy. But what's he saying? If, if, if where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, why don't we just keep sinning so we can really be, loving by, be loved by God? And Paul says, that's ridiculous. He deals with much later. He doesn't deal with much here. But he says, that's, that's not what God's talking about here. We, we shouldn't take sin lightly. We shouldn't take this love lightly. And then the third question, uh, fourth question, but he doesn't answer is, are you just saying, Paul, that we should do evil so that God can be good to us? And, and Paul basically says, I'm not even going to talk about that. <laughs> even though that he says it's so ridiculous. Although he will deal with it later in the What's the point of this question? God's fairness is seen in that he judges justly. God's kindness is seen in that his judgment has been perfect for all completed sins. But it hasn't been pronounced But although the wage of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And if you're a believer, that's your source of life. And if you're not, God's kindness is shown that you're here. You left everything behind that's been by Jesus and what He did. Jesus died for our sins, was resurrected for our salvation. Francis Schaeffer, the pope of this time, he writes this. He says, man is not pathetic. Man is a rebel. It's not as if man were hopelessly caught in a net from which he can't escape. He's caught in a net all right, but he's there by choice. And if men and women are caught in this net by choice, says the Bible, then there's something more involved. They must accept the responsibility for guilt for being there. What does it mean? It means that whether this morning you relate to a younger brother, a prodigal son who has just sinned really bad, or an older brother who's quiet and quiet, man, if God just has to save me a little bit, you can come to the reality, we can come to the reality this morning, that we all need to be entirely saved by Jesus. That we fall short, but by the grace of and my prayer is that none of us would leave here this morning without receiving Jesus. And that those of us who have, that we would be his disciples. That not only would we believe him for our salvation, but we would follow him. And that we will be on mission with him. So wherever you find yourself this morning, we can leave here rejoicing. That's the good news. We haven't told God is the good news, but that's the good news I've read ahead. Okay? That's what we can do. Father God, thank you so much for your profound love for us. It is your very kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. And so many people who, who don't know you don't see that yet. But that's a, a powerful statement. And they just see you as judge, and you do judge justly. We all fall short. But you're a loving God who has bore that judgment upon himself. Jesus died for our sins, was resurrected for our salvation. That should give all of us hope and joy this morning as we choose you. If someone's yet to receive you as Lord and Savior, why not right now in the quietness of our heart? To be in right relationship with you. And may each of us who have received you, may we leave this place of gathering as we scatter throughout this region, sharing the love and message of Christ with those around us. And what we do and what we say, we will glorify. Thank you for loving us so extremely.